Hi, it's Lily Head here, and today I have much pleasure in introducing Brendan Wally, property partner at Knights PLC. Brendan's specialist subjects are commercial acquisitions and disposals, and also commercial and residential landlord and tenants. And we're going to be covering off subjects such as reversionary leases, an explanation, what's key in the heads of terms, and all about understanding at the outset to save off big issues later, properties into pension pots, your options, and also rent reviews and third-party landlords. So, Brendan, welcome and thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Lily. Thanks for having me on here. It's a pleasure. Um, so, look, property is, um, there's a lot to cover, obviously, and certainly in our world, in practice sales, once you have an issue with property, you obviously are relying very heavily on the legal firm acting on both sides to, to get this sorted out. And I know, obviously, you represent Knights and help us with many of our deals. So I've got a few questions for you. So starting off, let's talk about the property being in good state to sell and the typical issues and what must a principal be aware of? OK, well, the first and most basic point is you've got to make sure that the property is in a good state to sell. So there's various strands to that. The first one I'd go to is if you hold the property on a lease, which many people do, and the landlord is a third party landlord, then just make sure there's a sufficient amount of term left on the lease. Most lenders will want to see a good length of term left on the lease of, say, 10 or 15 years. Many times you'll be selling to private equity backed purchasers and they've got the ability to take a view. So as long as the lease is a protected business tenancy within the protection of the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954, then they'll be willing to proceed even if the term isn't quite as long as 10 or 15 years. Now, a question people ask is what does that mean to have a protected business tenancy? So if you run a business from a property and you've got a lease and you've got exclusive occupation of the property or part of it, then unless the rights were excluded at the start of the lease, you've got an automatic right to a renewal lease on substantially the same terms as your existing lease. There are some exceptions, but that's the rule. So if you've got a protected business tenancy, your private equity backed purchaser can take the view that the shorter term is OK because at the end of the lease, they will be able to negotiate a new lease. If you have a private buyer and there isn't a sufficient term left on the lease, then they will almost always want to extend the lease, which you can do by way of a reversion release. OK, reversion releases. Um, can you explain what exactly a reversion release is all about, please. Nice, simple terms. <laughs> <laughs> OK, uh, we'll do the layman's terms. So it's, it's a lease that you create and you date and you register now, but the term doesn't start until the existing term of your existing lease runs out. So they seamlessly run back to back. Now, you can have issues of, around confidentiality here. Because if you go to the landlord, the landlord may say, well, you've already got four or five years left on the lease. Why do you want to extend it? You may not wish to tell them that you're selling because especially in smaller communities, the landlord may be part of the community. And if he goes into the local shop or pub and he tells somebody else that he's heard you're selling, that could get round to your staff even before you've found a buyer. A possible cover story that we sometimes use is to tell the landlord that you're refinancing and that your lender wants to see a longer lease term. Just keep in mind, though, that you can't force the landlord to do this reversionary lease, and some landlords may see it as an opportunity to profit and ask for a rent increase or a one-off premium payment from you. 
Yeah. It, you know, one of the problems that we often see is when a principal is very nervous about approaching their landlord or a third party landlord, you know, or an overseas landlord. Um, and it's a difficult one because they, they don't want to raise the subject of, of extending the lease until they're sure a deal is in the bag. But of course, people aren't going to proceed with a deal until they know it's a certainty. Um, and it often can cause some problems in the outset, which is why we say to people, use such a, a, a way, a means, a ruse, if you like to call it that, of getting an indication about the likelihood of them, you know, giving you the kind of lease you're going to need to sell your property. Um, as you say, you can't force the landlord to do this. Um, and there is that risk that they're going to hike up the rent and, and to ask for a premium deposit. Um, let's talk about freehold properties and you owning a freehold property. What are the sort of watchwords for a principal looking to sell a practice? Well, this one again is, is simple. Um, check your title and make sure that you know how the property is held. So if it's registered in the correct name. Now, the, uh, the story that we always use for this one is, is, is a factual case that we came across. I was acting for the seller of practice who was in business with her ex-husband and they went through a divorce. She was awarded the practice premises and she bought the other half of the practice from the ex-husband. Um, when we came to sell, we obtained the title deeds and the freehold of the property was still held in the ex-husband's name. Nobody had actually transferred it over. Now, luckily in this case, they were on good terms and a bit of paperwork and within a couple of weeks, the, uh, the practice was back in her name. Um, but it could have gone very badly wrong if, if it had been um, not such an amicable party. I was going to say that was, that was <laughs> very lucky because it could have been absolutely disastrous, couldn't it? Yeah. Um, the simple answer to this is get a copy of your title deeds. It costs three pounds. You can get them from the land registry online and you then know what name the property's in before you start. OK. And I'm assuming that if you asked your solicitor to do this kind of job for you, even though you say it's a simple task, we all know that people are busy. It's just one more thing to do. Would they do that for you or is it something that has to be done by the actual freeholder themselves? No, no. The, uh, the you, you can ask your solicitor to do that and I'm sure they'd be more than happy as part of the preparatory work for selling the practice. So you say you go to the land registry online, low cost, to be absolutely sure at the outset. And, and the trouble is, of course, that with a lot of transactions, Brendan, we see it's, it's a bit like when we talk to people who have an expense share partner. A lot of these things were done so long ago, people don't know, they can't remember what they had in place. So these are critical bits of advice here, aren't they, to before you start, because it, it can be difficult enough, you know, navigating a sale without such major, major things, you know, cropping up. Um, so if you own the freehold and it's in your personal name, let's talk about transferring properties into pension schemes. Tell me about your experience of that and your advice. Okay. Well, it's another common process because there's, there's some great tax savings to be made. I'm, I'm not a taxation expert, so I won't go into it. But uh, if, if you're able to transfer the property into your pension scheme, then you can grant a, a lease out to the buyer and the buyer's rent as it comes in week on week or month on month or quarter on quarter, then goes straight into your pension fund rather than into your personal bank account. So you save on the tax on the pension income. Now, what you would need to do is get um, individual taxation advice on that, because depending on your own situation and your own income and your own finances, it could be beneficial or it could actually be not as beneficial as, as you would initially think it's worth. So take some tax advice and, and see whether it's worth doing it for you. 
And is this something that a specialist tax expert could help with or could your, you know, um, your accountant per se deal with this or do you recommend going to? You need an accountant who's, who's good with um, tax across all of your portfolio. So make sure you, if, if, your ta if your own accountant is a good accountant, he should know this type of thing straight yeah. off. And again, it's all, it goes back to that, doesn't it? Reconnaissance is, is not ever wasted because you've got to find out exactly what works best for you and what could be detrimental. And do it as early in the process as you, as you possibly can, because if you're going to put the property into a pension, regardless of whether you go through with your sale or not, then it doesn't matter if you do it earlier rather than later, because then you know the property is in a space where you can go straight into the sale without having later problems. Yeah. Good advice. We like people who plan early in our world. <laughs> and often people don't. And we, you know, we understand that. But um, we, we try and help people as much as we can point out. And this is all good to help us educate and help our clients into saying, look, find all, get your ducks in a row. Find out all this kind of critical information, first of all, because there'll be lots of other stuff to deal with as well along the way. But these are the biggies, aren't they? Really? Mm, they are. There is one more point on this, which is um, to do with making sure the property's in the right name. And that's if you're selling the shares in the company rather than the assets. And if you own the freehold of the company, make sure the property's not registered in the name of the company. Because when you come to sell the company shares, if the property is in the name of the company, if you don't transfer it out of the company and into your own name or another company vehicle, then the property will go with the shares. So, again, you need specialist or accountancy advice because when you remove the property from the company, that could have some impact on the books, the balance sheet, the assets of the company, which may impact on the sale. Well, of course, serious tax implications. And again, that's the last thing that anybody wants to see at the end of a maybe a sort of nine, ten month sale duration to have something like that come out of the woodwork. OK, now let's talk about repairs because... <laughs> It's something that is the bane of our life when an issue comes up with properties, especially listed properties. And that's not to say a modern property doesn't also have its issues, but we all know that the older business, uh, older practices, there's going to be a heavier likelihood of it's going to be needing work done. And, and obviously roofs are the obvious one. Um, we had a sale where we thought we were safe to go back in the water and, and um, we were so pleased with ourselves. And then we got the report that it had rampant Japanese knotweed. And I've never forgotten that. Um, but let's talk about repair provisions in leases, because, again, this is something that comes up when you are about to transfer a property, creating a new lease. Who does what? Who's liable for what? So tell me about repairs and leases. OK, well, as a landlord, if you're if you own the freehold of the property and you're going to become the landlord, you're going to want to see the whole of the property being repaired. That's a full repairing and insuring lease. That is what it says on the tin. The tenant repairs everything. And if, they, if it has to means the roof needs repairing, yes, initially you go to your insurer, but if it's minor repairs, then that falls to the tenant. Um, they repair the roof, the structure, the inside, the outside, absolutely everything. So what um, tenants tend to do, especially corporate tenants, is they tend to try and erode away at that full repairing lease. And they will do things like have a full survey and condition report done and they will find every single problem with the property and they'll come back to you and say we want you to repair all of that before we take the lease on and if you don't we'll extract all of those items from the repair provision 
and we'll leave you with the, the repairs to do yeah. yourself. Um, some corporate tenants try to say that they will just repair the inside and they will leave the landlord with the liability for the roof, the structure, the foundations, the, the expensive things. Um, one situation we did see was where the tenant insisted that the repair liability was internal only. They then removed all items that were in major disrepair from the repair clause. They then made the landlord responsible for the roof, structure and foundations. And in the end, the repair clause was so far biased in favour of the tenant, it might as well not have been in the lease. And uh, the landlord, who was the freehold owner, was so taken with the deal he was getting for his practice, he refused to consider the liability, not just for the next 15 years, but the 15 after that, when the lease was renewed and the 15 after that. And he failed against advice to take any uh, notice of the fact that this would erode the sale value of his freehold property. Because any investor coming in will look at that repair clause and they'll reduce their valuation. Absolutely. I mean, nobody wants to take on... It's like buying a house, isn't it? You know, if you can see obvious fundamental flaws there, you want to buy it in a good, the best shape possible. Um, I mean, we often see, you know, disputes about, you know, people's different perception of what a cost will be. I mean, I'm quite fortunate. I've moved house many times and I've also done some renovations. So I have a, I have a pretty good steer on likely market costs, but I'm not an expert. And obviously they need to get an independent structural survey. And that's a given. But often you'll find sometimes that somebody will say, I've been told it's going to cost £25,000 to get the roof done. And our advice is you need to go out and get three quotes from a company that you both respect and trust. It's no good going to your friend's dad in the next village because you have no idea what their agenda is and their capability. So we always try and resolve it as quickly and as we can and say, listen, go out and get three quotes. And you have to agree on what the works that are going to be done. Um, but... I would imagine that the most popular sort of lease is the one where the the you know the exiting principal is shows responsibility for the premises externally because as you say that's the biggest cost isn't it? Mm, it is, and there's there's a, a topic for another time perhaps is um, internal due diligence around things like fire safety because people don't even consider that that perhaps fire doors if you had to replace them under the terms of a lease under the statutory re requirement to repair they can run to four to six thousand pounds with fitting for a decent fire door if you've got to replace ten doors in a practice it's it's a big capital expenditure to think about yeah it's a lot to think on board take on board really and I, as i say it starts with a good structural survey um, and an awareness um, and sometimes of course people only learn that through mistakes and the hard way and owning a couple of three properties in their life but for a first-time buyer it's quite daunting because they're not aware of it why should they be? They've never had that kind of exposure. And it's really just, as you say, having a good legal firm representing you to make sure. Um, so that leads nicely on to talking about heads of terms. Um, obviously, let's get your opinion here on the property element in the heads of terms, because we know that they're not legally binding, but they can cause huge problems later on. Yeah. That's true. Um, most people, when they're selling a property, they, they seem to be not too concerned about what the buyer, usually on the corporate side again, is putting into the heads of terms because they know they're not legally binding. So many sellers don't take any legal advice because they think, well, they're not legally binding at a later point. I can always come back and change the terms. Um, the solicitor then only usually sees the heads of terms at the point where they're being instructed 
And at that point, they will point out all of the problems with the heads of terms. The buyer will then, sorry, the seller will then attempt to go back to the buyer and suggest that they change the heads of terms, at which the, the favourite um, line I hear from corporate buyers is that they have based all of their price and all of their deal on those heads of terms. And if we start to ask to make changes to them, then it's going to involve a change in the price or a change in the deal. And so at that point, it's too late. So don't underestimate the heads of terms. Get legal advice on them before you sign them. Um, any solicitor who's going to help you, especially if it's an anticipation that they're going to be instructed in the, the sale, they'll help you shape those heads of terms as best they can. Cool. Now I'm going to put you on the spot now. I'm going to ask you for some examples because everybody likes a, a story, a juicy story about some examples of where this has gone awry in a deal. Yep. Some examples yeah. I've seen. Uh, rent being expressed to having to be inclusive of VAT. Now, you can't actually express rent as inclusive. You have to express it as exclusive, which means that if you want rent of £18,000, you're, you're going to have to put that it's £18,000 flat, but you would actually have to put it, you, they would expect to see £15,000 and then VAT on top of it if you're charging VAT. So just be aware that you should never, never ever in a heads of terms accept rent being inclusive of VAT. It also undermines your resale value to investors. Because if you've got an investor who opts to tax their property as a standard um, procedure, they will look at your rent and they'll knock 20% off the value of it straight away because it's inclusive. Um, another one is leases being expressed to be internal repair only because that means that they only repair the inside of the shell and you're left with the repairs for absolutely everything else, including any gardens or grounds or parking areas. You make a good point there, Brendan, if I may interject there, because people don't think about that. They don't think about the parking area and the garden. They just look at the fabric, the drains, the roof, you know, a bit of damp. But it, yeah. there is so much more to it. Um, I once did um, a lease for someone. It was Their property was an absolutely gorgeous former church, and it was um, a grade one listed building. And the, the, there was sort of a couple of um, acres of land outside, side gardens, grounds. It was really lovely and picturesque. And the buyer would only take an internal repair in lease, leaving the seller, the, the owner of the, the freehold of all of this, with every part of the costs for the outside. Gosh. And can people make unreasonable demands once they become a, 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 you know, a tenant? In terms of... Well, in terms of, you know, demanding that certain works are done in the gardens or, you know, does that affect the tenancy there if they say, I want to, you know, I want this done, I would like, you know, certain things done in the garden, the driveway, you know. Yeah, or, or you've, it... you've, got a, you've got a duty not to derogate from grants. So if you, the, in normal terms, what that means is if you give them something in a certain state and condition and a certain expectancy that it will remain in that state and condition, you can't take away from that. So as landlord, you've, you've got the, the liability to, uh, to keep it up. And any solicitor who's worth the salt acting for the tenant will make sure they put a positive obligation in the lease anyway, that the landlord keeps those things in order. Well, that all just goes to reinforce the absolute need to use a dental specialist law firm. And with regards to the property, someone like you, the properties are to make sure that you are covering off every potential angle. Um, 
Come on, give me some more. It's just great. I'm loving hearing all this. Oh, we've got another one is um, clauses restricting the property from ever being opted to tax. That's similar to the first one we talked about. But what that's saying is they say to the landlord, you, you will never during the course of our occupancy or at all during the lease be able to opt the property to tax. So that, again, is, is going back to investor purchasers. They would be very much put off by that. Um, another one, landlords being unable to use the property as dental practice if they don't grant a renewal lease at the end of the term. Now, this goes back to the 1954 Act and the protected business tenancies we talked about. One way a landlord can get his property back, even if it's a protected tenancy, is to say that he wants it back for his own use or that he wants it back to redevelop. Now, if you're going to redevelop it as something else, it doesn't matter if you take it back and you can't use it as a dental practice. But if you want it back for your own use, to use as a dental practice, and your lease says that if you take it back under that part of the Act, you can't use it as a dental practice, it means you've got no choice but to renew the lease whether you wanted to or not. Wow. So, it, yeah, we're seeing that in more and more heads of terms just lately. Really? Interesting. Okay, um, rent reviews. Well, that's another one. Another, another, <laughs> another one that crops up in our world quite a lot. Um, obviously, uh, tips for sellers who've got a lease with a third-party landlord. We touched upon this earlier, but yeah, sellers who've got a lease with a third-party landlord involvement. Yeah, the, the, the basic advice here is don't delay and don't sit on a rent review, even as the tenant because you might think you, you're getting a great advantage because the, you, you're still paying the lower rent but it's not going to help you in the long run in certain circumstances and and this has happened more more during covid actually but this was a really recent one that we've seen a rent review fell due in 2020 the landlord didn't operate the review and the seller as the current tenant at the time thought they'd sit tight and enjoy at least another year at a lower rent now, the review clause was based on market rents, but it's upwards only, which most are. Now, what that means is when you come to renew the rent at rent review, you'll suggest a rent that you want. The landlord suggests a rent that they want and you come to an agreement. If you can't agree, you go to a surveyor and the surveyor looks at all the local market rents. If the market rent is lower than the, the rent you're currently paying, you'll carry on at the current rent. If the rent review says the review, the rate the rent should be higher, then you'll pay the higher rent. Now, in all cases, the when the review is done, if the rent's increased, you have to pay all the backdated rent back to the date when the review should have taken place with interest. So in our particular scenario, the rent review was due in March 2020 and it wasn't operated. If it had been operated, then due to COVID, the rent would almost certainly not have increased. The landlord would have realised he just wants to hold on to his tenant in the uncertain times, and he would have probably agreed to sign off a review at a nil increase. And we saw some cases while COVID, while the lockdown was on, where landlords were actually agreeing rental decreases because they just wanted to keep the tenant in the building. Now, we acted for the buyers in March 21, and we noted that the review hadn't been operated from March 2020. Now, if we as lawyers for, for the buyer had done absolutely nothing, after completion, the landlord could have operated the review from March 2020 and our client would have got stung for all of the back rent 
back to March 2020. Now, what we did was we said to the seller that before we go any further, you've got to operate that 2020 rent review. And again, this isn't anything particularly um, clever. It's just something you notice and you ask to be done. Now, the landlord was very aware that the seller wanted to sell his business. And the landlord said he would agree to do the review quickly, but he wanted a rent increase from £26,000 a year to £35,000 a year. So that was a 30% rent increase. That sum was not backed up by any valuation evidence whatsoever. It was just plucked from the air by the landlord. Getting him over a barrel, we call it. Yep, that was it. <laughs> and it's literally nothing we could do. So as buyers, we knew that when we got to 2025, which was the next rent review, there's no way the rent would be above 35000 So we weren't concerned about that. But what we were concerned about was the difference, this 30% increase for the next four years. So we said to the seller, you're going to have to pay, uh, sorry, reduce the price by the increase that it's going to go up by for the next four years. And also you're going to have to fund all of the arrears back to March 2020. Now, the seller, they'd got no choice if they wanted to proceed. If they'd bitten the bullet and done the review in 2020, they wouldn't have had any increase and they wouldn't have lost any money off the sale price. But because they delayed, they had to repay the year's worth of inflated rent plus the next four years' worth of inflated rent. Now, the moral is simply don't sit on the review. At some point, you're going to have to deal with it and pay back the arrears anyway if the rent increases. If you're in the middle of the sale when this is being done, you'll leave yourself open to that kind of dubious action by a landlord. Wow. That is... Well, it's quite shocking, really, isn't it? What can happen, as you say? And, that, and don't sit on rent reviews. It's very important. Uh, protecting yourself. And, of course, such a hike in rent massively impacts the EBITDA, which impacts the ability to fund it and sell it. Yep, so these indeed. are critical things. And it, it's not only that, it's, it was the, the worst thing about it was actually the stress on all of the parties, the buyer and the seller and everybody involved, because the, the landlord was simply refusing to come to the table and holding everybody to ransom. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, we do see that on occasion um, where, especially with an overseas landlord, and, and we just can't get hold of them. And of course, as you mentioned earlier, they're not really... They're not invested in the business. They own often multiple properties. We tend to find them in, in sort of major cities, you know, larger conurbations. And even getting through to them to get through to the right person can take months. And of course, by that time, you end up with transaction fatigue and, and things can go wrong. And ultimately, on the toss of a coin, a deal can go south because you're dealing with a landlord who isn't really motivated to help the deal. They just see it as an opportunity to increase the rent and get the terms that suit them or, you know, say, no, I'm not prepared to do that. And they'll reduce the lease terms. So um, it's all about really, isn't it? Starting early, getting everything prepared, being aware of what is going to impact you. Um, that's a very interesting story. And I look forward to sharing that with my team. Um, Brendan, thank you very much. Um, it's been good to talk to you. I know we can have lots of other questions for you. So what I'd love to do is set up another chat with you sometime in the future. Um, but how would people get hold of you for, to get some advice and to obviously engage your services? What's the best contact detail? Uh, best contact detail is email or telephone. So brendan.wally at knightsplc.com 
or if you give us a call at the uh, Newcastle under Lyme office, which is 01782 619225 and just ask for me. And um, yeah, they can uh, easily put you in touch with me. That's great. Thank you very much indeed. It's been lovely to talk to you. I know we ended on a bit of a low note talking about the landlords, but it's been some really good advice all round. And as you say, it, the key is uh, don't sit on rent reviews. Preparation is, is, is king. Um, and get an absolute expert in to guide you through the minefield that can, it can be. Lovely. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. Bye. Bye.